listening to The Jim Laird Show on Body IO FM, where health and performance collide with your host, Jim Laird. Hello and welcome to another edition of The Jim Laird Show brought to you by Body IO FM. Today we have Mr. Rob Wolf on the line, and I'm sure most of you know who he is, and we will skip all the bios and that because we can look that up and we'll get right to it because Mr. Wolf is on a time schedule type deal. <laughs> well, and, it's just all part of my, my parole you know, constraints. Yes. I need to be somewhere at a certain certain point for that. Yeah, so, when yeah. you start having children, things like that happen, don't they? <laughs> exactly. And, and Mr. Mr. Wolf and I can bullshit all day, so uh, we'll get to it. So Rob, like a couple years ago, I think it's a couple of years ago now. I was at Paleo FX, and um, you know, in our society, we have this huge judgment of morality on obese people, you know, or people that are sick or you know overweight. And you gave a talk that really kind of changed my perspective on that. Could you kind of give people? Um, I'm sure you know what talk I'm talking about. Give people a rundown of that you know, how you look at obesity as a evolutionary, um, response. And that kind of shift my thinking around, around that quite significantly. Oh, thanks. Yeah. You know, it's something I've been noodling on for a long time and I, I really need to give props to Arthur Devaney because he made this point, man, back in the, literally the mid nineties that, um, you know, we're just wired for a different timeline. Um, you know, even though there have been genetic alterations since the paleolithic, you know, we have lactase persistence and, and we have some things that have, have changed since we were actually hunter gatherers, but you know, things have not changed that much on the genetic side, but on the epigenetic side, the food, the sleep, the, the community, those things have changed massively. And, there's this reality that if you find navigating the modern world of food and digital gadgets and all these things that spin the, you know, the dopamine centers of the brain and, and make you excited, um, if you find that stuff difficult to, to deal with, then uh, uh, it shouldn't be surprising. Um, I had some sort of music coming through. Was that you, Jim? Or was that my side? I don't know. I think it might have been a Facebook notification. Okay, let me let me know. see here. Sorry about that. No, I have no, 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 no idea what the heck is. Was going it good on. music? It was not. Uh, uh, particularly, okay. I have no idea where that came from. That's, That's all right. Okay, so uh, so you know the trying to use this, um, I guess, evolutionary biology framework to um, to remove the guilt and the the morality and the shame that oftentimes goes with. Uh, any type of change, but particularly uh, diet and lifestyle change. Like people just beat themselves up. They feel like if they were only better, if they, you know, their friend down the street or their, their spouse or someone that they know did something and they look great and they lost weight and they felt better and it just seemed to be effortless for that person. And then for, for the vast majority of people though, um, I, I think the number is oh, 40 million Americans each year try a diet um, virtually all of them fail and by fail, you know, they don't stick to it long-term. They don't reach body composition goals. They don't have health changes. Most of these people, um, try multiple times per year to affect this change. And, and, uh, you know, the one thing that we seem to, to do with these folks is moralize them. 
We, we tell them if they, you know, if they could just eat less, move more, um, push away from the table, you know, don't be a, a fat glutton that everything would be okay. And for a tiny subset of people that shaming or that discipline approach works. And these are the people that we kind of hold up as the standard bearers for what we should do. And then we just ignore the fact that maybe woven into our genetics, just like every other critter that moves on the planet, we should be trying to optimize how much food we get while minimizing the amount of energy that we expend. Because if you live out in the natural environment, you never really know where the next meal is coming from. And so you can't just, you know, run willy nilly, uh, uh, burning calories when you don't know where that, that next meal is coming from. And that's the context that our genetics were forged in. And we, you know, if we can understand that a little bit, that in, and even though this stuff is very cognitive, it's my hope that there's an emotional connection to that too. It's like, oh, so I'm not an idiot. I'm not a fuck up. Like, I, right. you know, this is the normal state. And it doesn't mean that we just stop there. It doesn't mean that we just roll over and show our fleshy underside to the world and, you know, just acquiesce. But hopefully then we, if we can diffuse that emotionality, then we can actually, you know, motor forward and get something done and try to find something that works for us individually. So unless I misinterpreted your, your, your talk, basically what you were saying in that talk was if you're obese and you're basically sedentary from an evolutionary standpoint, you're actually a winner. Yes. That, you're doing everything right. Yeah. You're doing everything right. Yeah. And because, that's, cause yeah. that, that's what we want. We don't want to have to move too much and we don't have, you know, if you go back a couple hundred years, the, the there just isn't calories on every corner. You know, right. and, and, and so that for me was a huge game changer. And I don't think people, most people have ever thought about it that way before. Right. You know, th this is maybe a, a far afield thing or kind of wacky, but in the book, I, I mention a guy who undergoes a medically supervised fast for 381 days. And I, I talk about this in the book as part of the ketosis and fasting chapter, which I kind of pull out because I see those as very distinct tools with very specific utility. But, uh, and so I talk about that from, from just kind of the perspective of ketosis and fasting, but, but more to the point here, this guy was, I think almost 500 pounds and he, he, you know, went in this, uh, medically supervised fast, but you know, if the power went off today, if no food was delivered, if, uh, you know, just the whole system ground to a halt, who's going to be alive three months from now? Not very many people, not very many people, but the people <laughs> who are carrying like 50 to hundred pounds of extra weight might be the folks who are still alive, you know, <laughs> if they can and find water, <laughs> if they can find water, they're going to be okay. Whereas, you know, uh, if you're, um, you know, if you're living right on the, the edge, like you're super jacked and you're muscular and you're lean, but you can't find any food, you are not actually going to make it that long. Right. And, and, and so it, that's maybe, uh, something that, you know, we have what was historically a beneficial adaptation, this ability to store significant amounts of fat relative to every other critter on the planet, particularly compared to other primates. Like we are way more fat uh, mass intensive than, than other primates. And that's because we kind of embarked on a different strategy for food acquisition. We, um, we hunted and we gathered the food tended to be more nutrient dense, but a little bit more sporadic. So we had periods of both feast and famine. And, uh, and so we're, we're wired up to be able to, to store calories pretty 
efficiently. And, you know, so, you know, hopefully again, this, this idea of, okay, if, if the power goes off, who's going to be alive in three months? And this sounds crude, but, you know, just saying it straight up, the fat people will be the, the folks still, still around. And it, hopefully that also provides a bit of an aha moment. It's like, oh, okay, this isn't really in the grand scheme of things fucking up. It, it, right. it, it's, it's actually, um, you know, this is, again, it's a survival yes. technique that, that's woven into our genetics. It's just when, when we are chronically overfed and this goes on for years or decades, we, we also on, on the flip side of this, we really don't have the capacity to deal with plenty every day, all the time. It's kind of like, you know, we, we can handle a certain amount of sunlight. We can handle a certain amount of exercise, but when anything becomes chronic, that seems to be where the problem arises. And it's funny, our body is so smart. We, our body will use things like type two diabetes to get us to stop eating so much starch. You know, so, you know, if you look at diabetes as actually the body trying to say, hey, dude, like you're eating too much energy, you need to shut that down. Uh, instead of what modern medicine does is we just override the system with drugs. Um, I think it's a, um, you know, a very interesting, you know, when I talk to people that come in here that are that are, quote unquote, overweight, I tell them this is a survival response to keep you alive. Like, you know, you're storing more fat for an emergency. So we right. have to get your body to figure out, like, there's no emergency. There's no need for you to store all this excess stuff. Right. Right. And that, and it's, um, it's interesting trying to figure out how to frame that because it goes against everything that we're told kind of emotionally. Like, if you look at most of the Judeo-Christian religions, you have these ideas of, like, sloth and gluttony. So we've got kind of religious moral undertones with this. Um, the standard dietetics approach is this... Uh, everything in moderation, eat, eat less, move more. And, you know, when, when you go into a regular supermarket, like your average supermarket, it typically stocks about 50,000 different food items or food-like items. There's about 10,000 new food-like items developed every year in the United States. What does moderation mean when you're walking down the chip aisle, you know, yeah. and, and for, we, we would never with an alcoholic or even with like cocaine or even nicotine, we would never say that there's really a moderate dose of that. But yet we will say everything in moderation when folks are cruising down the, the snack aisle and I'm not really all that into sweets, but I tell you what, you stick Salt a, a plate of Oh man, you put some nachos <laughs> in front of me and, yeah. and they're, they're going to disappear. And so we all typically have a trigger food or a trigger genre of food. Um, some people, all the food is the trigger. And so these, these, uh, recommendations are really just, uh, continually failing us. And I mean, you just look out at society, you look at the exponentially increasing rates of obesity, type two diabetes, neurodegenerative disease, uh, insulin related cancers. Um, we're, we're losing that fight. And so we're, we're clearly doing something wrong and the messaging is wrong. I think that the, you know, and I, there wasn't any, you know, uh, mustache twisting villain, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to, you know, screw this whole thing up. But there's a reality that the food producers, the marketers, they understand our evolutionary biology way better than the medical circles do. Yes. And they use that against us. Like it, it, I was, uh, I was sitting in on a marketing piece, um, that, that was kind of technology related and probably the first quarter of the, the piece was talking about our evolutionary biology, neural architecture, 
how we are, are um, really um, stimulated by unknown and uncertainty and, and essentially gambling. And so using that knowledge, then they build things like Facebook and Twitter and other types of apps so that there, there's a certain randomness, but also a certain kind of dopamine hit that's baked in the cake. And so it, it's really funny. The people who um, are selling us the things that are making us sick and kind of derailing our process, they understand our physiology. They understand the evolutionary biology. But then the gatekeepers who are supposed to be helping us, the doctors and dietitians, with very rare exceptions, they don't really understand this material at all. And, and it, it, in my opinion, the lack of that knowledge, like we're not even remotely on the right page to even ask the right questions to get going in a, a better direction. So it's, um, ironically, you and I have, um, really incredible job security because I, I don't think anybody's going to swoop in and just fix this thing out from under us. We get to fix it like one person at a time. And you do the best you can and, and yeah. you provide information and, and obviously it's, it's difficult because, you know, I'm not a doctor. So when I, t when I speak to people, I'm like, look, I'm not a medical doctor, but here's this information where you can actually, you know, go in the right direction and actually heal yourself as opposed to just living longer, wronger by taking a medication that's going to allow you continue to, to crash and burn you essentially. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, I, I think people forget, you know, I mean, if you go back, you know, 200, 300, you go back to Victorian age, you know, being, uh, actually slightly overweight was attractive because that means you actually had money and you could feed yourself. Right. I think people forget too, if you look at it from like a Weston A price, um, type perspective, we're designed to eat seasonally. Like, you know, if you're in, in, in Nebraska or if you're in Northern Canada, like there isn't going to be carbohydrates available all year round. You're going to be in a state of ketosis. You're going to be eating a high fat diet in the winter time or whatever you can store in your root cellar. And you're going to have seasons of, you know, high fat. Uh, you're going to have seasons of higher carbs, you know, in, in the spring and in, in the summer. Um, how is this, you know, We've constantly got this refined starch available 365 days a year. Um, how's that affected our our neurology and our biology uh, and our ability to to basically, you know, I've got people that come in here they just can't stop eating no matter what they do, you know, because right. they're just they're just a vacuum cleaner. Especially you throw you know throw somebody in front of a TV and all of a sudden three bags of chips are gone. Right. You know? Man, you know, it's a, it's a really good question. And I, I, uh, the question may be far better than my attempt at an answer, but you know, these it, it, stepping back the this ancestral health, this, um, you know, kind of paleolithic perspective, it can really be off putting to some people, some people like it, some people don't, but you know, the, the greasy used car sales pitch that I have on that, or at least one of them is the following. Can we learn something about the way that our, our, you know, physiology functions by looking at our, our ancestors, you know, and it, it's basic ecology. Like you look at any animal or any critter in the natural world and you ask questions about like, well, what does it eat and when does it sleep and what's its activity patterns, you know, and, and that can inform a lot about the way that that, that critter is, is wired up to live. And I, I think that it would be foolish to ignore that stuff with us. And when we dig into some of the anthropological literature, um, hunter-gatherer diets had a big spread on the various macronutrients, but the, there were few of them that really went much above 
about like 40% carbohydrate. We do have some examples of like the Catavans and, and even, uh, uh, not a hunter gatherer group, but the Okinawan city, 60, 70% carbohydrate, mainly from tubers. And they seem to do really well. But I mean, they, they, historically there wasn't a massive amount of carbohydrate. And like you said, it varied with seasons. There was seasonality with it. Even folks who live in more equatorial regions, um, certain periods of the year, they might be eating as much as 90% of their calories from carbohydrate and other periods of the year it might be as low as like 5% of their calories from carbohydrate. So there's huge flux and variation and, and, uh, and it was never a, a guaranteed deal that there was always going to be something to eat or, or quite as much as what we would like to eat. And that was stuff that was just baked in the cake. And then with the advent of agriculture and then industrialization of, of our food system, and it's amazing, like we've, we've, uh, you know, we're able to feed the world more or less, although it's really fascinating now that most people who are, are poor are both overweight, but undernourished, they, they're lacking in, in basic nutrients. And so they're, they're in this really weird state of starving on the one hand for basic nutrients, uh, vitamins, minerals, uh, 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 you know, plant phenolics that, that appear to be important for the gut biome, but then also they are overfed from a caloric standpoint. So we have a really weird situation that we've never faced before in that regard. And, uh, this, you know, this industrialization of the food supply has allowed us or, or, because we're able to make so much food, it, we, we can't eat it all immediately. So then we need to do something with it. And usually the do something involves making it highly palatable, long shelf life, uh, potato chips, Twinkies, buns, you know, I mean, all, all these things that, uh, you know, we'd figure out how to make them really, really tasty. And they appear to hit the dopamine areas of the brain that are related to addiction and, uh, Stimulation and th those same areas, the hedonic centers of the brain are basically sex survival food. And so they're really deep seated. And it, it, it is before we get into the, uh, the cognitive areas of the brain. And so the, those impulses that derive from the hedonic centers of the brain are really, really powerful and very hard to, to deal with the best thing to do. It's kind of like, uh, you know, getting into a knife fight at a biker bar is a tough thing to deal with. The best thing is don't be there. Like you're, you're just not going to come out of that thing is as good as what you would like, no matter what your, your skill set is. And similarly, um, we know what these hyper palatable foods do with regards to bypassing the neuroregulation of appetite, the ability to, to, even though our bellies are full, even though we are awash in, in sufficient calories, we just, We'll continue eating and we'll eat more and more and more. And then a, another layer to all this is that these refined carbohydrates appear to alter the gut microbiome. And we, it's pretty clear that the gut microbiome is really, really important for health. Um, there are a number of folks out there that um, claim a degree of understanding about the gut biome that, that you know, the, they will say, well, if you have this profile, then that's good and that profile and that's bad. And if we do these lifestyle tweaks or take these supplements, then everything is going to be all, all good in the world. Um, I think we are miles away from actually being able to do that. I think that the folks claiming a lot of that knowledge, um, are not, they're claiming more knowledge than really what they can support empirically. So, uh, it, you know, we know that the gut microbiome is, 
important, but this kind of circles back around to the macronutrient wars and, you know, is high carb good, is high carb bad? Uh, the carbs that we ate in the past are what we would call cellular carbohydrates who are part of tubers or grains or fruits and vegetables. And the, the carbohydrate ended up going through the stomach, going through the small intestine, and then was largely accessed uh, uh, further down the digestive tract. Whereas when we eat sugars and refined carbohydrates, those things tend to be absorbed primarily in the small intestine, and then it starves the rest of the digestive tract. And this does appear to be a really highly inflammatory process, and uh, it, it's called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, it may be an underpinning of things like Crohn's and irritable bowel disease, diverticulitis, like the, a lot of these things really intersect there. But this is where we run aground oftentimes when we get into the high carb versus low carb debates, because we do have historical examples of folks that ate both large amounts of carbohydrates and very little amount of carbohydrates. And both those groups were comparatively very, very healthy. But when we started industrializing those foods and the qualitative nature of the carbohydrates changed, that's when we saw problems. Um, some people today, though, that are, are sufficiently sick, if their gut microbiome is sufficiently disordered, and I, I'm kind of one of these these folks, then I need to eat on a bit on the lower carb side of things. But something that's interesting is over the course of time, I have fiddled with different uh, things like taking homeostatic soil organisms, doing alternating bouts of very low carb with some antimicrobial agents to try to prune back my gut microbiome. And I can handle more carbs in general now and also a wider variety of carbs without getting that, that kind of, uh, insulin resistant blood sugar swings and whatnot. So there are some things that you could do and, and, uh, uh, you know, it's worth investigating, but it's, um, you, you know, it, it can become very confusing because uh, again, using the historical precedent of the, you know, hunter gatherers and just pre-industrial societies, those things can really provide some, some great input, but it may or may not give us the answers that we need today. It still may boil down to a lot of self-experimentation. Kiefer and I talked about this a little bit on, on a show we did. We did two shows a, a couple weeks ago. And, you know, he was like, you know, we talked about how the fruits and vegetables today are nothing like the fruits and vegetables, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they're, they're so much sweeter. They're bigger. Uh, they're just totally different, you know. Um, so I think that plays a, a role as well. And he, he, his take on it was like, you know, these, these, these traditional cultures – that we're eating these higher carb contents. One, it's nothing like the carbs we're eating today. And two, they weren't in a calorie excess. And that allowed their body to have some forgiveness because you didn't have that extreme over calorie load. And then you had, you know, they were almost like fasted in, in almost a way, if, if I'm explaining it correctly, I don't, I don't want to, I hope I'm paraphrasing it right. But because they ate an underboundance of calories that bought them kind of some forgiveness on the carb end. So right. I thought that was kind of a interesting perspective. But if you go back to like Weston A. Price, it's the four white devils. As soon as those four white devils showed up, you know, refined sugar, um, was it refined dairy, uh, whatever the other two were, refined I think it was salt. Like salt, yeah. yeah, yeah, refined yeah. salt, refined dairy, uh, refined sugar, uh, and then probably flour. Yeah, something like that. I mean, it was the four white devils they call it. And as soon as those showed up in any um, any culture, 
uh, that was just it, all of a sudden jaws changed all of a sudden, you know, everything just went to shit. And, and if you haven't looked at that book, the degeneration of cultures by Weston a price, it's, it's a pretty big eye opener. Now uh, let's get, you know, you and I are, are very similar on the political end of things. How is food subsidies played into all of this? Oh man, it's a, it's a <laughs> huge <we> <laughs> deal. Yeah. And you know, the, uh, um, not to overly plug the book, but you know, I, uh, the, the book's called wired to eat And the first chapter originally, or, or the second chapter technically, cause I had an introduction chapter. And then the second chapter was, uh, supposed to be called lies, damn lies, statistics. And I kind of went through everything from the Ansel keys story of kind of some shenanigans go, playing into, um, you know, is fat really killing us or is carbohydrate good? And there was it, Ansel keys gets very, uh, nastily mischaracterized, but the, the guy, um, started a process that, that had the government and the, the medical scene really looking at, at dietary fat as a huge villain and, and, uh, inappropriately. And there's even it, as I was writing the book, there was a new um, uh, study and news piece that was an outgrowth of the study that basically indicated that um, uh, the recommendation for low fat had been proven wrong within Key's research group, and they basically buried that data, um, paid people off to to ignore it, and you know there you go. And then this was. Interestingly, uh, when a lot of this stuff was cracking open, uh, into the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, we're in the, the ramp up of the cold war. And, um, one of the things that we really, you know, used to motivate people was this idea that we needed to outcompete the Soviet union. And so we said, ironically, we developed a system of socialized <laughs> farmer welfare to produce farm subsidies and uh, this was a, a win for the politicians in power at that time because you had a pretty large voting block that was conservative on the one hand, but stoked to get some governmental handouts. And these people started producing massive amounts of food that we, we couldn't do anything with. And then this got shuttled into the industrialization of the food system. So you had a government subsidized process for making food readily available and available at prices that were below what really the market norm should be. And this is where the, uh, snack foods and Twinkies and, you know, all the, the delectable treats that have almost infinite shelf life derived from. And it, it's interesting today. Some, some folks are looking at things like soda taxes and stuff like that. And there, there's some pretty good, I've been incredulous about these things, but there, there's some pretty good literature indicating that taxing this stuff does reduce consumption, but I'm still strongly of the opinion that it's goofy. Like currently we both tax and subsidize tobacco in this country. And that, yeah. that just, it, it's, it's crazy, you know, yeah, and, absolutely. and, uh, it, you know, in a, in a good functioning market-based economy, there are going to be winners and losers. And if we decide that, you know, tobacco is kind of a, a not great thing. We're, we're not going to do prohibition on it because we've gone down that road and that really, you know, that's great for uh, drug runners and cartels, not so good for society. So or great for uh, people that are trying to develop the gas industry for cars. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Cause it, uh, formed the, the backbone of the distribution. Yeah, We network, couldn't use but, alcohol to run our vehicles anymore. So, right, right. So, um, you know, it, 
I, well, I well, would just an aside on that. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but I'm from Canada, you know, and I, and I love my home homeland. But they have literally it's I can't remember how much it is for a pack of cigarettes. It might be like seventeen dollars maybe for mm. a pack. I might be uh, it's high. It's super high. And then they have limp penises and rotten lungs like pictured on the pack. And of right. course, people still smoke. I mean, you know, there's there's certain people that, you know, they're going to they're going to do that no matter what. So, you know, just get rid of the subsidies and that way a Twinkie doesn't cost less than a carrot. Exactly. I and, mean, it, it's and, not that complicated to figure out. Yeah. And that was some analysis that I did in the the that particular chapter. So there, so there's going to be this chapter lies, damn lies, statistics didn't make it in the book but it's going to be part of the pre-sale bonuses. Like if people order the book ahead of time and then there's going to be a, a email location to send that, that information, then we will send you access to uh, this, this chapter that didn't make it in the book lies, damn license statistics. It goes pretty deep onto, you know, just how the food system that we currently exist in came into being. And there's both, uh, you know, you, it was mainly an accident. Like the, the, you could, you know, the path to hell is paved on good intentions. Like, again, there wasn't some, uh, you know, evil villain, you know, twisting his mustache, waiting to, to, uh, you know, screw everything up. But, uh, there was definitely a confluence of well-intentioned ideas that have manifest in this situation now where literally our, the burden of diabetes on our healthcare system is an existential crisis. Like it could cripple the economy and, uh, and you know, there's just enormous suffering that occurs in that whole process too. And also, know, and, and totally also enormous profits. Yes. You know, you've yes. got medical, yep. medical, um, um, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, you know, the, the oil industry is always demonized, but the pharmaceutical industry that just keeps, giving this pill out, giving this pill out when the majority of the stuff can be fixed through lifestyle change, um, and a change in diet and, and, you know, do they really, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know if they, if they conspire this stuff or not, but do they really want us to change? Because, you know, all of a sudden, if, if everybody that's got type two diabetes cut their carbs back for a while and all of a sudden they didn't need, you know, all the different drugs that come with that, that's billions and billions of dollars off the table. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, say what you will about CrossFit, but those guys have really been taking the, the kind of sugar lobby to task. And like, there was this guy, I forget his first name, Dr. Katz, really outspoken dude, super, just a prick. Like the guy's just, <laughs> just kind of a prick. And, um, uh, you know, he's, he's one of these huge sugar defenders and uh, some really, and there's a number of people out there that are, and they're very much in this kind of NSCA camp and, uh, paleo socks and, you know, all this stuff, but it's, it's fascinating. There've been some really damning, uh, reports that have come out in which, uh, you know, like this guy cats has been taking money f- essentially from the sugar lobby and, and, uh, Coca-Cola via the affordable care act. And, and interfacing with, with the medical system was trying to create a, this thing that basically the totality of overweight was going to be blamed on exercise. So personal trainers and, and physical therapists and other people were going to be tasked with getting people to exercise more. And, um, you know, the amount of sugar that you consumed wasn't really going to be a factor that was considered in any of this. And, 
there are people in credible scientific institutions that will argue that this is just fine and this is the way that things should be. But then you step out to the real world and, uh, you know, these sugar laden substances appear to be pretty damn addictive. And there also appears to be some really, um, untoward collusion between the, the industry, like the food producer side, uh, the university level academics, and then the people in the government. Or and, people uh, like Coke are funding the nutritional education. Funding this stuff. Yeah. And, um, and, like we're just in the beginning of unpeeling this onion, but lots of people on high positions have stepped down and, you know, there's some pretty good hullabaloo around this stuff. But, you know, five years ago, people would have laughed at this. And, uh, you know, you, you could make an argument that you're like, man, if I were the sugar producers, what would I do? Well, I would get in cahoots with the academics and have them falsify this research and say that sugar is just dandy. And then I would find some people that have maybe recently left industry and now they're in the government. And I would get those people to sign off on this via the dietetics boards. And lo and behold, this is actually the way that it's all played out. So, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, but it, it, it's pretty new and there's still a lot of, uh, stalwart sugar supporters that, Oh, it's, it's just calories. And, you know, if we starve people in a metabolic ward, it really does largely boil down to calories, although the macronutrients will change the story about whether or not weight loss or weight gain, um, you know, is it all fat? Is it some lean muscle mass? You is know, it like bone the, mass? Yeah. is it bone mass? So, you know, <laughs> so at the end of the day, thermodynamics does win, but we don't all live in a metabolic ward. We right. live as generally free ranging humans and have fortunately or unfortunately, access to just about every imaginable type of food and a bunch of things that you couldn't have imagined five years ago. And those foods can completely, you know, bypass our neuroregulation of appetite and lead us down some pretty nasty paths. I, I have a, I, I think a pretty cool example of this in the book. And I, I actually have a link to some video around this. And it, it's this guy, Adam Rickman. He, he hosts uh, man versus food and, um, he, he does these eating challenges. He'll travel around and he'll eat like a massive amount of food in a, a particular sitting. And one of these challenges was in San Francisco and it was called the kitchen sink Sunday challenge. And literally they bring an ice cream Sunday out in a kitchen sink. And it's like eight pounds of ice cream and hot fudge and whipped cream and all this stuff. And you win some prize. I don't know if it's like diabetic of the year or what the, what the prize is, <laughs> but you win some prize for eating this thing in a given period of time. So he gets in and he starts getting after this, this, uh, ice cream Sunday and he gets maybe a third of the way in and he starts really bogging down. And I mean, like he literally turns green on, on camera and he's just, you know, it's looking bad for him. And it's so fascinating. What he does is he orders a plate of extra salty, extra crunchy French, French fries, fries. Mm -hmm. and he starts eating one French fry and taking a scoop of ice cream and one French fry and taking a scoop of ice cream. And this is the thing that like, if, if the whole book should just be this really, um, but he manages to eat the ice cream, which he would not have been able to finish by eating more food. Yeah. And, and like, just let that sink in. Like the, the, the three people listening to this at this point, like just noodle on that. He would have failed eating that ice cream. But the way he succeeded by was by completely changing his palate and textural experience 
it, with a, a food that was as different, you, you know, the salty, crunchy, savory French fries perfectly juxtaposed against this uh, cold, creamy, sugary ice cream. Well, and, and, and so I, uh, you know, you had a show on, you had a guy that was like a food scientist on, I believe. And he talked about how they design like Doritos and they take all these things that these tastes that in the past coincided with super nutrient dense food and they put them into this Dorito chip. Right. So like, your yeah, brain it's called is, the Dorito effect. Yeah, your amazing your, book. Your yeah. brain is getting this message that you're getting all these vitamins and nutrients, but you're actually not. Right. And and I always tell people always ask like, what is your like if you were gonna die, what would be your last meal? And for me, it's a large Wendy's frosty, and extra salty French fries. Mm. I mean that just spins my dials. Every once in a while, I'll go and have that after I've trained, just just to kind of mess with my brain a little bit. But that combination of the frost, especially if you dip them in the frosty, mm. uh, I hope I didn't make like three thousand people go off the rails on their <laughs> diet right now. But but that combination for me of that salty with ice cream is just, I mean, it just spins my dials in a way that's yeah. probably not good for me. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, you know, it, 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 if folks took anything out of this podcast, if they if they whether they get the book or not, um, if you could just noodle on that picture of a guy sitting down to eat eight pounds of ice cream and he's going to fail. Yeah. But the way that he succeeds is by eating more food, eating a different type of food, different palate experience. And then if you overlay that with the way that we generally eat these very complex meals and we finish things off, we're like, oh man, I've got some of that chocolate in the the cabinet and you, you know, it, it just shouldn't surprise you that if you are set up such that you've got a million different flavor options in your, in your refrigerator or pantry and they're all easy access and there's a, a wide variety of, of these flavors and textural experiences, if you find it difficult to avoid those things, you shouldn't be surprised because this right. is the strategy that professional eaters use to eat more food. And, yep. and we effectively eat like professional eaters now. You're essentially taking the governor off the car or, Absolutely. you know, like these cars that are turbocharged, you're reprogramming the computer so that you can go faster or take in more fuel or more oxygen. And, it, and we're overriding our programming. And perfect analogy. Yeah. So, yeah. so you and I, and and people probably get tired of us talking about this, but in your book, you go over community, you go over sleep, you go over like, you know, meditation type stuff. And I beat people over the head with that when they come into the gym, they get sick of me hearing it. They're like, I'm just here to work out. And, and you know, and we talked, <laughs> can about, I just get my pump on man? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, before you talked about just exercise more, but what guess happens when you increase exercise, people just eat more. I mean, that's just, the way it goes. Like if you're going to train more, you're going to eat more. I mean, that's just the way we're going to go. So people that, that have this poor eating habit, if you throw intense exercise at them to try and burn that fat off, they're just going to end up eating more anyways. Right. You know, and then the meta- and as they adapt to the exercise, the metabolism is going to slow down. So, you know, we beat people over the head with this whole deal of like mindfulness combined with sleep, combined with community, um, you know, going for walks, stuff like that. You know, you put this in the book again. Why is this stuff uh, so important? Why isn't it just food? Oh man. Um, I really wish it was just one thing because, uh, 
That would be you easy. Know, it, 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 <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, then you've got one target to shoot at, but this thing is like, you know, the, the country, the county fair where there's 50 different targets and you got to hit them all more or less at the same time and you've only got a bean shooter. You don't have a shotgun necessarily to kind of go after it all, although there are some ways of kind of ticking all these boxes more sequentially. You know, when we, I look at health from this kind of four pillars perspective, sleep, and under sleep, I, I expand that to like circadian rhythm and kind of photo period because those are all woven together. And then we have food, which we talk a hell of a lot about in the book and we've already discussed a lot. Then we have movement um, even because, you know, we, we evolved as hunter gatherers and we forget the activity that was woven into hunting and gathering. And or even, really, even as a farmer, I mean, or even you, as a farmer, even you know, as a yeah. farmer, I mean, you're, I grew up on a farm and I did a whole shit ton of manual labor. Right. Right. You know, so just uh, baked in the cake is this expectation on the part of our genetics that we're doing some physical activity and more days than not. And then this other part is community. We are communal creatures and a lack of community, a lack of adequate social support can be as impactful on health as a pack a day smoking habit. And all of these things tie in together. The, the stress, uh, hypervigilant states, um, altered circadian rhythm, like you can go down the list and, and if we are stressed out for whatever reason, if we're fixating on money, if we have, uh, you know, marital problems, if we have a, a challenging work environment, you get a dog. You get a dog, like my my <laughs> wife cracked out on me, yeah, which nearly led to our divorce, like the first legitimate fight that we've had in like 15 years, um, bringing home a dog when when I asked her, please give me one year, but that's that's a podcast for a different day. But, um, Sorry to derail you there. No, 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 no. I, no, I no couldn't problem. help it. No problem. Um, it's a perfect, perfect example. But um, any of these things, if we don't sleep enough, if we get, <clears throat> excuse me, if we... Um, if our circadian rhythm, like if we don't get exposed to the right amount of sunlight at the right times, or if we have sunlight or we have, a, a you know, light in our eyes in the evening when we should be going to bed, if we are stressed out, if we're not exercising, all of these things play into altering the neuroregulation of our appetite. And it's largely through the stress response. And like, you're a huge fan of HRV as am I. And I think it's such a cool modality because it gives us a, a sense of the total allostatic load. Like what's the, the total bucket of ass kicking that we have withstood in the last like 24, 72 hours. And the, to the degree that we can pull all these things back into alignment, it just sets us up for success. When we are sleeping well, then our hormonal profile looks more anabolic, more fat burning and less catabolic and fats, uh, uh, you know, retaining, um, we're happier. Our lives are more fulfilled. You know, all of these things just tend to go together and we really do need to button all of them up and give them some addressing. Uh, this is, and in the book, I mentioned some things that I, I really like, because again, we are super busy and it'd be nice to get multiple, uh, things out of a given, you know, activity. And this is where like a well-run CrossFit gym, I think is amazing because if it's well-run, then the programming is appropriate or, or, you know, something like that, like, like Jim Laird, you know, where you, you go into that gym and you get some movement, you get counseling about sleep and stress. Community is baked in the cake because you've got your, your group of, of people that you're hanging out with, you know? 
And so you end up to, and, and then typically the, they're a well-run facility is going to talk to you about good food. And so, you know, something like a CrossFit gym or some sort of a functional fitness gym that, that is well-run and well-structured can tick almost all those boxes. It's really amazing. It's part of the reason, in my opinion, why CrossFit type stuff has been so incredibly popular because you do get all of those needs met if, if things are well-structured. I, I think that martial arts programs can be similar, Absolutely. although they tend not to talk about food as much, but you get the community and you get the exercise. Yoga can be similar, but again, you know, CrossFit was kind of interesting in that they adopted early on this kind of zone paleo type diet, which is pretty damn effective. Like it's, it, it's pretty damn good. And so you, you had an effective nutritional strategy baked in the cake plus all this other stuff. So, um, you know, these other pillars are really important and because we are very time crunched and we're very busy, it, it would behoove people to think about, okay, how can I tick multiple of these boxes, you know, and, and for me, it's going to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu when I started, a an old guy kind of uh, drills and skills class that that's been pretty popular and I've been able to weave in some, some food and some lifestyle stuff into that and kind of help my coaches, uh, bring some of that into the mix for the rest of the clients. And so that's been really good for folks, but it, it, you know, you have to fish around a little bit to, to cobble that together and you may not get it in a one-stop shop. Like if you just don't like doing CrossFit, if you like doing trail running or something, you know, you're getting the activity, but it's kind of a lone activity. Maybe you find a running group so that you get some, some, you know, socialization also like, and I give some suggestions about that in the book for, for thinking about that so that you can kind of multitask on this stuff and not have to knock each one out individually. Awesome. Well, Rob, I know you have to get going. You've got some things you need to take care of, but this interview should be coming out the week your book is being released. And uh, what is that, like mid mid to late March? It's March 21st, the official release date. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And when it'll be available, I imagine, on all your major, uh, you know, Amazon and all that it, good stuff. It, it, the, the quote is, everywhere books are sold. Yeah. Are yeah. you doing an audiobook version of this, Rob? Yes, I am. Oh, yes. good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> we, we had a, it, it, people may not know, but uh, Jim was, um, was uh, in contention for doing the audio version for the Paleo Solution. But uh, because I've done so much podcasting and stuff like that, like although you did an outstanding job, folks were just like, yeah, Rob needs to do his own book. So I'm going to be saddled with doing that bastard. And, and, but and, yes, and there absolutely you, will be an audio version. And it'll, it'll be easier for you because you'll be able to, because you're the author, you can kind of like, you know, change the wording or paraphrase things. But sitting down and doing an audio book was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life because oh, they wow. wanted it to be exact. Right. And if I missed like a pause or if I said thing because I, I read things and I'll kind of say things maybe a little differently than it's written, but it's the same meaning. Right. Um, man, they crucified me. Like they're like, do it again, do it again. It was, and I have a hard time focusing. So it was, um, it was, it was challenging to say the least. So but. basically I, I, I created the worst experience you've ever had in your life. No, it wasn't so. bad. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. And I think, I think if, um, I, I really enjoyed reading it. I think if I would have, um, you know, obviously 
you know, because of your podcast and that was the reason they decided they didn't want to do it. But I think I would have done a, a, a really good job. And I actually enjoy doing stuff like that. So if I ever wrote a book for myself, it would be a really easy uh, process for me. It's just that it was just difficult because it had to be exactly. And you, of course, you throw all these words in there that are kind of, you know, unique. So right. uh, I know you, though, so I kind of know how your tone goes and how you speak, you know, speak how you speak. But it was it was probably one of the most challenging things I've ever attempted. But I, I, I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> well, I I, uh, I I'm sorry that it sucks so badly, but I am gonna <laughs> I I, uh, I am gonna uh, bite that bullet and do the audio version. And uh, you know, I just wanted to say a sincere thank you to you. You've You're supported welcome. me and all the stuff that I've done for a long, long time, and I've just learned so much from you. You've really helped me to dial in a lot of my training around old guy Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So, uh, oh, I appreciate uh you're, you're a huge friend and, uh, just really appreciate that. Oh, thank you very much. And you've helped me as well with a lot of my health issues and got me going in the, in the right direction. And you've, you've, uh, over the years have, uh, always been available for me when I'm struggling with business stuff to be like, Hey dude, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, hitting rock bottom here and you're like, Oh man, I've been through that before. It wasn't, it's not, that's that not even close to rock bottom. Yeah, I've been, <laughs> Let me I've tell been you about rock bottom. worse than that. So that it's always nice to have people that, you know, cause when you own a business like I do, you sometimes feel like you're on an Island. I mean, you've got all these people depending on you. You've got, you know, landlords and lawyers and, you know, you got partnerships and you got all this stuff. And, and it's nice to be able to sit down and talk with somebody like you who's been through a lot of this stuff. So I really appreciate your friendship as well. And oh, thank hopefully you. I will see you soon. Uh, sometime. Definitely Paleo FX. Paleo FX or bust. So. Well, well, we'll see. I'll see if okay. I can make it this year. Sometimes it, uh, it just because I don't have a lot of the things, you know, that I can present that you do, it, it, it just depending on what I got going on the gym, but I'm going to try and make an effort to, cause that's the only time I get to see like you and Charles and, and Dooley and, and uh, right. it's hard. We're all so busy that uh, a lot of times we don't get to see a lot of these people that we, uh, we really enjoy being around. So it's unfortunate. Right. But, Maybe we need to goose Charles to do another cube summit or something like that. I mean, we can, we can work on something, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And, uh, well, John's in Texas now too. So that's, that's an opportunity. That's that's yep. very, very close for both of us. So, but thanks for having us on and, or having you on. Uh, thank you for being on. <laughs> on. One of us is on. <laughs> I know it's not me, but, uh, thanks for tuning into another edition of the body of the Jim Laird show on body IOFM. You got me all flustered, all those compliments. I just can't handle them. <laughs> And once again, if you have I'll never do it again, I'll never do it again. I promise. <laughs> Thank you again, Jim. Take You're care, welcome. man. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into an edition, another edition of the Jim Laird show brought to you by body IOFN. And of course, if you have any questions for me, um, and of course you can check out Rob on robwolf.com and, um, my blog is jimlaird.org. You can also check out my Jim's website, jimlaird.com. Uh, That's G Y M L A I R D.com. Um, and that's about it. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show. Have yourself a great day. You've been listening to the Jim Laird show with your host, Jim Laird. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. Don't miss the next episode of the Jim Laird show when he'll probably say something inappropriate but unexpectedly insightful.